Great to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. It's amazing how much the uh, songs we sang and the uh, scripture reading we did really set us up for what we're going to talk about this morning. If you look in the cover of your Bible, uh, the inside page probably says Holy Bible, and certainly that's true of every passage, but there's, there's something about the one we're going to look at today. We're in Mark uh, 14. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 32 in just a minute. Um, if, if you're new with us, uh, thanks for coming today. Uh, we practice something here called uh, expositional preaching as a church family. Simply, that means almost always we start in a book of the Bible and we work our way through it paragraph by paragraph and try to listen to whatever God would say. And this morning, uh, we come to uh, a very heavy but significant text. By way of reminder, or to review last week, after the Passover meal, Jesus took his uh, disciples and left the, the upper room where they had celebrated the last Lord's Supper, uh, the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. They headed out of Jerusalem down what's called the Kidron Valley up the other side to the base of the Mount of Olives. And there, Jesus told the 11 remaining disciples that they would all fall away. And by that, He meant, you're going to desert me. You're going to leave me all alone. They vehemently denied it, but Jesus knew the truth. And then they kept walking up that Mount of Olives. And that brings us to a place called Gethsemane which is simply a, a pro probably a private olive grove on the side of the Mount of Olives. And that brings us to verse 32. Would you follow along with me in your Bibles? And they went to a place called uh, Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. These were the, the inner three, the disciples he was the closest to and had spent the most time training. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Every Sunday this year, we've been in the Gospel of Mark, and week after week, paragraph after paragraph, we've seen Jesus in sort of every imaginable situation. 
some of them rather extreme. And without exception, in every paragraph, we've encountered Jesus in his brilliance, in his power, in a supernatural calmness and peace, always telling the truth, ever gracious. He has been in control in moments where it seemed like no one could be. And that's what makes Gethsemane so outrageous. Here, we meet Jesus like we've never seen him before. A year of Sundays, and Jesus has not been like this. The word Gethsemane means oil press. It's named after the, the, the olive grove in which they would take the olives, put them in this large stone press, and press those olives until the oil came out. It's a fitting name because Jesus there was pressed so intensely that it nearly ended his life. Verse 33 uses a, a series of terms that depict him in tremendous agony. Together they function to show an astonished Jesus overcome with horror. The scene is so striking, I think it's reasonable to wonder, is this even the same person? If we just sat down and read Mark 1 and started in one sitting and came all the way to this passage, it would be all the more striking to us that this is so different. Never before had Jesus been shaken, let alone rattled down to his very core. And so we, we must ask, what happened? What happened there in that olive grove that would cause Jesus to react this way? Well, beloved, I, I believe if we'll come to grips with the answer, that it will leave an indelible mark on our hearts, and it will infuse us with appreciation for Jesus in fresh ways and spur us on in such a way that we will be faithful in our own times of suffering, and we will submit to the Father's will, even if it's difficult for us to do so. Would you think with me about some of the great martyrs of the Christian faith, both in the Bible and outside the Bible? The first, of course, was Stephen. You can read about him in the book of Acts, if you're unfamiliar with the story. He was the first person killed for his faith in Acts chapter 7. But then, of course, there's people after that, people like Peter, Polycarp, Wycliffe, who incidentally, the, humanly speaking, the reason you have a Bible in your own language is because of Wycliffe. Beyond him, people like Tyndale. Each of those men faced terrible death with heroic bravery as they were being pummeled with stones or lit on fire or crucified, every one of them remained steadfast, strong, steady, faithful. Were those Christ followers of greater fortitude than Christ himself? Were they more faithful than their own 
Messiah. Hopefully you're revolting against that idea, but doesn't this passage raise the question? Because in the existing records of those men, none of them had a moment like this right before their death. The key we must come to see is that as Jesus in this text anticipated the cross, what he was concerned about was not the physical pain he was anticipating. It was something else. And to see that something else is so critical because he faced something prior to even being arrested that they didn't, even in their own death. You see, it wasn't the torture of the whip or the searing pain of the crown of thorns being mashed on his skull. It wasn't even the agony of being nailed to a cross hoisted in the air where he gradually, slowly suffocated to death. Those physical things were not what was on Jesus' mind in Gethsemane. Something else was. To uncover it, we need to follow the clues in this paragraph. The clues can be summarized in only two simple words, two little words we often use. Maybe the phone has the answer. Two little words that are in the passage. Number one, our, not our, but H-O-U-R. And number two, cup. Let's think about those two words. First, the word hour. Laying on the ground in agony. Jesus prayed, God, if it's possible, let this hour pass from me. Now, Jesus wasn't asking if he could somehow supernaturally skip from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. No, Jesus was using the word hour metaphorically or figuratively. Hour refers not to a specific length of time, but to the significance of a certain period of time. You see, Jesus was now on the doorsteps of the critical moment from which he left heaven and came to earth. The reason why he came is now here. He's on the welcome mat to his hour. And as the eternal Son of God, he knew what lie ahead was his impending arrest, trial, scourging, and crucifixion. And as he contemplated the arrival of that hour, something he saw gripped him with horror like had never gripped him before. To know what that was, we need the second clue, the word cup. You'll see it if you look at verse 36. He prays, Abba, Father. The word Abba, you might have been taught that that word means daddy. And certainly the people who say that are well-meaning. It doesn't actually mean daddy. It, It means father. It's a more intimate term for father than simply father. I don't know how else to explain that. It's father, but with intimacy. And fascinatingly, in all the existent literature that we have from the Jews, 
No one prior to this moment had ever used the word Abba in relationship to the Father. That's not how Jews thought of God. They weren't that close to Him. The relationship wasn't that intimate. And yet for Jesus, He said, Abba, Abba Father. All things are possible for you. Here it comes. Remove this cup from me. Believe it or not, the key to this entire passage is that little three-letter word, cup. As Jesus looked in the cup, he saw boba. Boba. You know those slimy, pus-filled disgusting things that people take in their drinks. As Jesus saw that, he said, Father, remove this cup from me. And all God's people said, amen. I don't understand what's wrong with you people that drink that stuff. Now, I'm kidding, of course. There was no cup Like the word hour, Jesus is using the word cup metaphorically, figuratively. You see, frequently in the Old Testament, the word cup was used as a representation of the wrath of God. And so to drink the cup of God's wrath is to bear the consequences for your sin, especially by being the recipient of the Father's just judgment. God is holy. We might say that God is perfect in all His perfections. And He created people in His image to obey Him and to represent Him by living life on earth in such a way that we'd be a a dim but correct picture of what He's like. And yet in our sin, we have failed to obey Him. And so he promises from Genesis 3 all the way through the rest of the Bible that we who are sinners will in one form or another bear his judgment. We will, that is, drink the cup of his wrath. We will bear in ourselves the weight of the judgment of God on our sin. As Jesus stood on the doorstep of his crucifixion, He held that cup close, realizing that he would soon drink it. And that horrified him. It horrified him because as he looked in that cup, he saw not Boba. He saw two terrifying ingredients. First, as he looked in the cup, he saw that In that cup was the sin that he would soon bear. Every act of rebellion would become his. The pure, spotless, ever-righteous Jesus would have every sin of every person who had ever become a Christian put on him. Our sin would be counted as his. And that horrified him. Because he's holy. I think... Frankly, it is impossible for us to even get a tiny sense 
of what that means. We are so accustomed to evil. It surrounds us and remains within us. But Jesus had never done anything, never thought anything evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is so incredibly helpful here. It says, for our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, for our sake, the Father made the Son to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? For what purpose would that awful thing happen? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, as he looked in the cup, saw all the sin that he was about to take on. But he also saw something else, and it's a direct consequence of that. He saw not only the sin, but he saw the wrath that he would soon bear. As God, Jesus was completely righteous. And as man, he had certainly never sinned. And so he never knew the judgment of God. He never for a single moment felt any judgment. But on the cross, Jesus would become our substitute. And Christian, he who knew no sin, would become your sin and therefore would drink the judgment of God that you deserve. In this divine plan for salvation, God gave the cup of wrath to the Son and He drank every last drop. Friend, you've committed evil. I don't know when. I don't know how often. I don't know how recent. But just like me, you have committed something that left you feeling icky. Something that caused you to feel the burden of the weight of sin. Imagine that feeling multiplied billions and billions and billions of times over. It's incomprehensible. That's what Jesus bore. That's what he looked and saw in the cup. And that's what he took for us. No wonder Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had only known perfect, uninterrupted fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit for all eternity. But on the cross, with outstretched arms, he felt unparalleled, unimaginable wrath alone. This, brothers and sisters, answers our question. Why did Jesus crumble there? Unlike ever before. Because his hour was here. Because the cup was being poured. Christian, would you consider personally 
intimately right now that Jesus drank the cup for you. Not in some far off, ethereal, religious, detached kind of way, but personal. Jesus took your sin. Jesus gave you his righteousness. If you ever question the love of God, come back to this text. Because greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And church, what's true of us individually is true of us collectively. Beloved, Jesus drank the cup for us before Jesus ever created the world. He resolved that he would have a holy people set apart for himself, who through how we relate to one another would display the goodness and the love of God, that we would be an outworking of this very gospel in the way that we love and care for each other. The Bible pictures Jesus as our husband and the church as his bride. So guys, you got to get used to, even you are the bride of Christ. What does that mean? It means you've been washed clean. And we stand in all white, dedicated to him giving ourselves fully and completely to him. And he is committed to us, his church, like a good husband is committed to his wife, to be faithful to us, to protect us, to care for us, to provide for us. It's a powerful picture. We are loved like that. Makes me think of Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, at Gethsemane, Jesus faced a tremendous trial. Because he saw right before him his hour and his cup. If you've ever had a major, major surgery, then you know that when you schedule it on the phone, you feel a little bit of butterflies in your stomach. When you plan for the days off work or the class you have to drop or the, all the arrangements that have to be made, you have some sense of, this is going to be hard. But the night before the surgery, when you climb into bed and you can't sleep and you lay there and stare at the ceiling, then you have some sense that the hour is now here in a way you didn't before. Jesus felt that
but in a way we can only think about. And because of his grace and his love and his mercy, we will never know because he took it for us. In his unspoiled, righteous humanity, Jesus understandably said, Father, if there's any other way to get the job done, if there's any other way, your people can have this salvation. Let's do that. But then, very importantly, he said, yet not what I will, in verse 36, but what you will. Submitting to the Father's will was far more important to Jesus than skipping, avoiding the hardship of the cross. Now, for time's sake, we need to move on, but there's lots more in this paragraph. And so I'm going to encourage you this week to get together with another person or two and look literally at every word. Notice things like the repetitiousness of Jesus praying and then going and checking the disciples and they're asleep and he says, stay awake. And he goes back and prays and Mark doesn't repeat it all, but he's praying the same prayer again. And this repeats itself again and again and again. What's important to know in terms of summary is that because Jesus was being strengthened by the Father, he was ready and able for, to endure what would come. And if this were a coin and we flipped it over, on the other side of the coin, the opposite is true. Because the disciples didn't prepare. Because they were full of spiritual lethargy. Because they slept. They were unprepared. And that makes what happens in the next paragraph inevitable. Look at it, would you, in verse 43? Immediately. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. He had skipped out earlier. He had gone in order to bring those whom he promised to bring to Jesus. And with him a crowd uh, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. They laid their hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out? against me as a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they, that's the disciples, they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked, or as Tad says, naked. 
This, this, this is it. This is the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. Under the cloak of darkness where sin thrives, the world's greatest act of treason ever to be committed was committed. The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. And yet, because the crowds loved him, they couldn't find a way to arrest him, get him through a trial, and get him dead without the crowds revolting. And yet, in a stunning act of betrayal, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, Judas. Judas apparently came to see, I'm not getting what I want from Jesus. And so filled with greed, he went to those religious leaders. He says, I know where you can meet Jesus. I'll identify him in the dark if you would but pay me. And so that night he came up to Jesus in, in the most intimate of ways. He said, that's the one. What a betrayal. Church, have, have you ever been betrayed? Maybe you discovered your spouse in an affair or a business partner stealing out from under you. Maybe a parent tossed you aside, choosing instead of your care another romantic relationship that you knew wouldn't last. Maybe a friend disclosed something incredibly private that you had shared in confidence. In a fallen world, betrayal is common, but its commonality doesn't lessen its sting, does it? Look to Jesus. Jesus understands. Take that betrayal rather than letting it eat you from the inside like terminal cancer. Take it to Jesus. He listens. He knows. And he will help you recover. The passage is clear. Once Judas kissed him, the guards had all they needed. They seized Jesus. And then one of the disciples we know from another gospel, it was Peter. Peter had apparently a sword, a small sword, in hiding, and when the moment of violence came, he took out his concealed carry card, he grabbed that sword, and either he was a horrible aim, or that slave, that guard, had a metal helmet on, and as he struck that helmet, it slid down the side and sliced off that man's ear. Ouch. After all the times Jesus had told the disciples, listen, guys, here's the deal. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. This is why I have come. Peter, precisely as that's unfolding, tries to prevent it with his own act of violence. The disciples didn't understand, even now. Jesus stood before a hell-bent mob, and he stood alone because all the disciples fled. 
When push came to shove, they self-protected. They abandoned him. Rather than stick with the one who was going to stick with them all the way to death, they fled. Now, there's one more detail we should notice. What in the world is going on in verse 52? What's up with the unnamed man, the naked man? The first thing I'd want to say is college guys, no. This is not a biblical reference that streaking is biblical. All right? First of all. Number two, the passage is rather cryptic, but let's see what we can uncover, pun intended. Notice a couple of things. It's clear whoever this guy was that he was interested in Jesus, that he went to great lengths to follow after him, that Jesus mattered to him. Notice that he's not one of the twelve. And it's very clear that his decision to sort of linger back and follow had been made rather hastily, that he wasn't prepared. You see, he had on his, we would say, he had on his pajamas. It's very likely that as Jesus and the disciples were leaving the city of Jerusalem, he saw them. He knew Jesus, he loved Jesus, he'd been following Jesus, and so even though he's already in his pajamas, he ran out and he followed from a distance because he wanted to see what was going to happen. Now, there's no way we can be sure about this, this side of heaven, but there is a long, 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 like back into the ancient church, there's a long series of scholars who, have, who, who, who believe that this unnamed person was Mark, the writer of this gospel. Now, again, we can't know for sure, but that was the very earliest position the church took. Think of how close he must have understood the gospel if that's the way he chose to include himself. Here's what I mean. When the Passover ended, maybe he saw them, so he followed along. And then in the chaos of everything happening as Jesus was arrested, the 11 were scattering. Then this guy got noticed. Mark was seen. And he didn't run. Initially, So a soldier came over and tried to grab him, and in that grabbing, Mark slipped out of his linen cloth. Linen is important to see because he would have been a wealthy man. Only wealthy people had linen pajamas. And it may have even been his house that they were meeting in for that first Lord's Supper. Now, once he's naked, he runs. 
Why does the passage give us that crude and rather bizarre detail? Friends, today many of us have an incredibly warped view of nakedness. We inappropriately, in the context of a marriage, hallelujah, but other times, we don't understand what nakedness represents. You see, it has a long history in the scriptures. Way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were, if you know the passage, naked and not ashamed. What does that mean? First of all, there must have been no mosquitoes in the Garden of Eden. But they're they're naked and not ashamed. What does that mean? It means far more than they simply didn't have any clothes on. It meant that they felt no shame. And yet on the day that they fell, on the day they rebelled, Genesis chapter 3 tells us, what happened next? Well, they blamed each other. They hid as though you can hide from God. And they covered themselves. Why did they put something over their bodies when they had never done that? Well, it's because sin brings an appropriate sense of I'm now broken. They were realizing I'm covered in shame. And so I've got to cover myself. Shame has dominated ever since because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, why tell us this man ran away naked? I think on one level, it's simply because it happened. The Bible gives us raw history. One way you know that these stories are true is because it includes bizarre, weird details like that. That's not the way stuff was written then. If it was made up, you wouldn't make up that. And so it happened. But at a deeper level, perhaps Mark is telling us how profoundly evil he understands himself to be and how desperately shameful he is apart from Jesus Christ. You see, he who... He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be righteous. Think about how that relates to the gospel. Jesus, we'll learn in a few weeks, Jesus had his clothes ripped off his body where he was hoisted in the air, nailed to a cross, completely naked. Jesus died naked on a cross so that he could clothe us in righteousness. Isaiah prophesied about this. He says in verse 8 of chapter 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me in the robe of righteousness. What is the gospel? 
It's that we who in our naked shame are overwhelmed by our sinfulness can have ourselves clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Wow. Mark came to see himself as one not running naked, but standing covered by Christ. You see, it is in marveling at the suffering and submission of the Son that we learn how to be faithful. It is in marveling at the suffering and submission of the Son that we learn how to be faithful. Brothers and sisters, what do we do with a passage like this? I think we marvel. We look at it, and 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 it pushes us to worship God with increasing awareness at what Jesus went through for us. And then as we look at it, we begin to think about how we have been unfaithful, but we want to become more faithful to the Jesus who went through that for us. And the passage shows us how tells us to watch for temptation. Over and over and over in the first paragraph, you see the word watch. Jesus was telling the disciples, get prepared. Don't be full of spiritual laziness. Get ready. Something hard is coming. Beloved, when we are at our weakest, that is when temptation is the strongest. And so we must be vigilant spiritually, looking out for each other. How can we be faithful to God when suffering comes? By watching for temptation. Number two, by praying in complete honesty before God. Friend, if Jesus can pray, God, is there some other way? Then how much more can you pray that your sufferings and trials would be removed. But in that praying, make sure you eventually reach the third way. And that's to say, God, I will submit to your perfect will. How do we be faithful like Jesus was? The only way we can is because he's now within us. And as he's within us, he will help us Watch for temptation, pray with complete honesty before God, and then submit to the Father's will. And my friend, if you don't know this Jesus, the great news we have for you today is that you can come to know him. If you believe what's been said today, not because I've said it, but because it's what the scriptures teach, if you believe Jesus died and rose again, if you see your need for him, then friend, you can simply count the cost that you've been living life apart from God and realize the cost of submitting to him is far less and ask him that he might remove your shame and cover you in his right standing with God. And he will. Would you stand with me and let's pray.
Father, I've trembled at the task of trying to describe these three paragraphs. Would you please do now what only you can do? And that's cause your preached word to penetrate each one of our hearts. And I pray quite literally we would be changed and to live differently with richer appreciation at what Christ has done, more convicted and assured of your love, and more equipped to be faithful to you in our own little seasons of suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.